0: People keep hitting me with folding chairs.
1: Yeah, and is it
2: also because your beard isn't big enough to
1: sustain the impact? I was
0: wondering, they call me Glassjaw Joe. That must be
2: true.
1: Welcome once again to Free Associations from the Boston University School of Public Health, the Public Health and Medical Journal Club podcast for anyone who is as confused by the latest health study as I am by how we have gotten to over 80 episodes of this podcast we are we're at 81 closing in on 100 which would be like over four years of this podcast so my question is particularly to you chris what are, what are we going to do when we hit 100
0: uh <laughs> i don't know that's a good question well i think we should have a drink but i do that every day yeah so i'm gonna, I'm gonna do something different
1: jess any thoughts on what we what we do when we hit 100
2: I don't know. I think it might have to involve some some risk taking with the sharks. You know, we were just debating. I don't know. Maybe go down to the the,
0: the seal petting zoo, dress up like a seal,
2: and see how you do.
0: (laughs) Just go brave. If
1: if you have no idea what we're talking about, go back to the last episode, (laughs) and you will know why we're talking about sharks. (laughs) Anyway, I am Matt Fox from the Departments of Epidemiology and Global Health at BU School of Public Health, and I am here with Dr. Chris Gill. Welcome, Chris. Hi, Matt. Who are you? And Dr. Jess Liebler.
2: Hi. Nice to see you. Welcome.
1: Thanks. Let's get into the show. So today in our first segment, which is our Journal Club segment, we're going to look at a study that tried to determine the effectiveness of a drug to prevent influenza. And then in the second part of our podcast, which is our deep dive, we will talk about a paper on lotteries for COVID vaccines or COVID treatments in general. And then in our third segment, which is our Amazing and Amusing, we will get into those things that make us laugh out loud, or Chris will give us some even more details about sharks, or maybe this time Jess will. Who knows? So let's get into it. Segment one, we're going to talk about an article. Again, it looked at the impact of a new drug or a new-ish drug to prevent influenza. It was published in the New England Journal of Medicine and was entitled... Balaxivir Marboxyl for Prophylaxis Against Influenza in Household Contacts by first author Hideyuki Ikematsu. Chris, did I get that even close to right?
0: Hideyuki Ikematsu.
1: Hideyuki Ikematsu of the Ricera Clinica in Fukuoka. Fukuoka. Close. yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So a couple of headlines on this one. So this one was from Eureka Alert that says single dose flu drug can reduce spread within household study finds. Medscape says, flu drug blocks household spread by 86%. And Medpage Today says, Zofluza prophylaxis has mostly stopped flu in Japanese families. And I actually liked that one because uh, I didn't know until I had read the headline that Biloxivir marboxyl is Zofluza. I'd heard of Zofluza, but I'd never heard of Biloxivir. So that was kind of useful for me. So Jess, can you start us off by telling us about this study and what they did and what they found?
2: Sure. So what I thought was initially notable, this is the most X's I think I've ever seen in the title of any article. The <laughs> boxel for prophylaxis. So it's a mouthful. But in in, in jumping in, is this, is a, this is an interesting paper. So by means of background, just for a minute, obviously household transmission is a key Exposure pathway for influenza viruses. Typically, you know, and this is where kind of this mentality came from for understanding COVID transmission. Typically, for influenza, children are responsible for infecting their adults, their household members. And so, household transmission of influenza, kind of looking at efforts to interrupt household transmission, is really critical in terms of trying to reduce a health burden from influenza infection. And antiviral treatment of influenza. There's, you know, there's different ways that antivirals are used in the context of influenza infection. They're used up front as soon as possible in certain high-risk populations. Also for people who are quite ill as outpatients coming in with influenza. There are some variations in terms of region and country, in terms of practice, in terms of how antivirals are used in influenza practice, especially in children. But just in noting this paper, some kind of some clear relevance conceptually to COVID and our understanding of how viruses are transmitted. So so this study they're looking at post-exposure treatment, prophylaxis, of biloxivir, which is a particular sort of antiviral that is used frequently in the treatment of highly symptomatic influenza. And so what, what they were trying to do, what they did in this study, is they, they had a treatment group and a placebo group. I'll go through that in a minute. Their treatment group were household contacts of influenza index patients who were provided prophylactically biloxivir, a dose of biloxivir, and then followed for a 10 and then a 15 day period for incidence of influenza. This was a multicenter, double-blind, randomized placebo-controlled trial. The study takes place in Japan during the 2018-2019 flu season. Household contacts of influenza patients who had PCR-confirmed influenza were recruited to receive a single dose of biloxivir or a placebo. The endpoint of relevance in this study was clinical influenza. So they defined that as symptomatic influenza. So not just having, it had to be confirmed by PCR, but in addition to being confirmed by PCR, they were looking for symptoms. So kind of symptomatic clinical influenza in the 10 days after the index patient and the household contact presented at clinic and the household contact was given a dose of either baloxavir or the placebo. Okay. Um, They also looked at asymptomatic influenza infection. So that was PCR positive, but people who didn't have, who didn't express symptoms, but had seroconverted and were um, infected with influenza. One of the interesting side notes of this project is obviously influenza viruses adapt and mutate very quickly in the context of antiviral treatment pressure. And so there was this concern about emerging drug resistance as has occurred with other antivirals. And so what they were looking at too were um, biloxivir-selected gene substitutions that would be associated with reduced susceptibility to the drug. And so they were monitoring this in their study participants. So there were 752 participants in the study. They were household contacts of 545 index patients. As I said, they were recruited November 2018 to March 2019 in 52 primary care centers in Japan, they were lab tested for influenza, and then they received themselves either the antiviral treatment or the placebo. Of the index patients, 95% of them had influenza A, so that's primarily what we are talking about. You know, there's many flavors of influenza, influenza B and C, and including D, but we're looking at A primarily here. And 75%, of note, 75% of the, of the index patients were kids younger than 12 years old, okay? So, what they did after the contacts were uh, recruited into the study, they monitored their temperature twice daily during a 10 Day study period, um, they did self assessments for a series of influenza symptoms, and they ranked those symptoms on a scale on a four point scale whether they had you know they were absent or they were very severe. They collected NP swabs from both the patient and the index patient, and also their household contact at baseline, day five, and day eleven. And they also collected blood samples for serology at a few points during the study. So at the end of the day, what happened here, this was a dramatic finding as epi papers go. Um, the Baloxivir group did much, much better in regard to symptomatic influenza with an adjusted risk ratio of 0.14, so an 86% reduction in self-reported symptoms and clinically confirmed influenza infection. In the, in the Baloxivir group, a little less than 2% of the household contacts, 1.9% developed symptomatic flu and more than 13% of those in the placebo group did. So this is is a, a dramatic finding. And the same effect was seen in people who were considered high risk for influenza infection, pediatric populations, and also people who had not received the influenza vaccine. They also looked at the overall influenza infection, which included, so these were people who were PCR positive, but had some some people who had symptoms and also the people who were asymptomatic. A strong effect there, the risk ratio was 0.43, okay? Interestingly, there was no difference between the biloxivir group and the placebo group in regard to asymptomatic infection only, okay? So these are just people who did not have symptoms, which indicates here that the drug affects symptom severity more so than your infection status, which is something interesting to think about from a biological standpoint. Okay? So the authors noted that they had the same percentage of adverse events between their two groups, which is a good thing, which they were claiming You know, generally might mean that biloxivir is not having more adverse effects than placebo and they you know so the, this this discussion here of the mutations in the influenza virus was an interesting one they detected these substitutions that were that were linked to baloxavir resistance in 2.7% of the baloxavir group and then a little more than 1% of the placebo group and concluded that it could not be ruled out that these were from the study dosing but then they were noting too that some of the index patients were also dosed with biloxivir. So many of the, the index, the original influenza patients, when they were seen in clinic were given biloxivir or oseltamivir as flu treatment themselves. And the authors could not, you know, you, they were saying we couldn't determine of the biloxivir resistance or the, the substitutions that were associated with biloxivir resistance. We did not know where that came from. That right. may have been from our study, but it equally could have been from the treatment provided to the original index case patient. Right, and I and I think that
0: you know, even amongst the, you know, there was there were like 15 pairs where they were able to compare the index case strain and the recipient case strain, or the you know presumed recipient right. case strain, and 13 out of the 15 were the same. So it, it does right. seem to make sense that perhaps that 1% in the controls were because of the blocks of your use amongst the index cases. It kind of hang, even though they couldn't prove it, it does seem very plausible that that's true.
2: Yes. No, I agree. I agree. I would note one thing. The interesting, one interesting aspect of this study involves conflict of interest, (laughs) and I could defer to Chris as well in terms of the pronunciation of the pharmaceutical company that provided the funding, Shinonogi. Yeah. Is that right? Yeah. So, so this is an industry-sponsored study, and the lead authors and many of the other authors have conflicts of interest. Where, you know, note that they have received support from this pharmaceutical company. So, just as an an interesting an interesting note, that there are some industry, you know, elements in this one.
1: And and I agree with that. I think that is something we always want to pay attention to. I certainly note it whenever I see it that that is going to influence the way I make my judgments. Chris, when you when we first pulled this study as a potential for something that we might want to take on, you said that if this holds up, this is potentially a game changer for influenza. What is what's your what's your take now that you've read it and is it in fact a game changer?
0: Yeah, I think it is. I mean, we have medications that you know, currently licensed by FDA in the United States that can be used to treat or prophylax against influenza. These are the amantidine family drugs and the oseltamivir family of drugs. But they're, they're inconvenient to use. You have to take them every day, sometimes several times a day. And they, you know, they're, they're not particularly expensive as drugs go, but they're not cheap. But I think the inconvenience is a, is a huge problem in terms of like anytime you're trying to treat or provide prophylaxis against anything, a multi-dose you know, per day regimen Lasting for many days is hard for people to actually accomplish. Whereas this is a drug that could be taken one time, and in theory you could even take it in the in the clinician's office. If you know, if, I, I suppose it depends on whether they're able to dispense drugs. But you know, in Japan, the clinicians—this is kind of interesting, just as a note parenthetically—that the, the clinicians often provide their own pharmaceuticals. So in Japan, it's, it's quite plausible that they would be diagnosing and treating at the same visit. So, but you know, this, this drug has an interesting pharmacokinetics. It has a half-life of, I just looked it up, 81 hours or about three and a half days. It's kind of astonishing. Mm -hmm. So one dose provides therapeutic concentrations for three days. And actually one dose provides, you know, high level concentrations for, for, you know, three to four, you know, maybe six, eight days based on the decay. So, you know, that pharmacological feature is uh, is a huge advantage over what we have right now plus unfortunately the oseltamivir drugs and the amantadine like drugs there's a lot of flu that is has become resistant to these so it's it's actually helpful also to have a a new agent that has a completely different mechanism of action with no cross resistance to it so
1: so would you is it so is it the game changer that you said it potentially could be
0: well if you can reduce spread within a household from an index case so you have you know a child who comes home and you've got mom who has some autoimmune disease and is taking immunosuppressants or you've got grandma who's just you know who's just elderly and may have you know comorbid diseases as well or just people in the household who you know are are working and can't really afford to take time off from work and you can give each of them a single dose and reduce the risk of of household transmission from the child who picked up the flu at school by almost 90%. I mean, that is an an astonishingly useful pharmacological intervention. We don't have many drugs that have that level of efficacy.
1: Okay, so... I would agree with you. I mean, to me, this seems like a, an incredibly beneficial effect, and obviously, this is a disease for which there is a reasonable amount of mortality associated with it, and so it's certainly something that we want to be able to have uh, prevention measures available for. I, you know, personally, I was kind of astonished by the the single dose aspect to it. I was thinking to myself, if if one dose is good, wouldn't two doses potentially be better? And you know, would a dose you know 2 or 3 days later maybe even make the effect even stronger but so overall i mean it, it seems to be a really impressive effect and it does seem to me that it is a a well designed study i i do note that you know there is the the potential uh, you know conflict of interest of the funder you know, as they say that the the, spo- the sponsor designed the trial an author's access to the data was not restricted by any confidentiality agreements. So the authors did not design the trial themselves, the sponsor did, but they did have access to all the data. You know, I am curious, and maybe it doesn't really matter because the effect size was so large, but one of the things that I really didn't see was the time that it took to go from the diagnosis of the infection to the dosing of the the contact and more importantly not just the time of of diagnosis but the time of the first person the index case becoming infected until the the dosing because obviously that would impact you know how much transmission there might be unless the drug is is actually effective at just reducing symptoms among those who who become infected, as you said, Jess. So I, I don't know whether or not that matters, but I was surprised not to see any information on that. Mm-hmm. Any 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 aspects of the trial that that you found interesting, Jess?
2: I think yeah. I mean, I thought this was a really interesting and well done study, and they actually they did make a note of of exactly what you're saying, Matt, in their randomization approach. Because I was thinking that as well that you know the duration of time that the child say it's a child that the child had been sick and infectious you know, when that child presented, they weren't all going to present at the exact same time in the course of their illness. And so when they presented at the clinic with the opportunity to recruit their mom, for example, into the study was going to vary. And so what they, what they did here is they, they balanced in their randomization scheme, they balanced on the basis of time from the onset of illness in the index patient to the informed consent of the study participant. And then they, they dichotomized that as more than 24 hours or less than 24 hours. So in terms of when did the child first get sick and first show symptoms, and they said to the, you know, if it was a child, or most were, but, you know, whoever it was, when did you first have symptoms, and then when did you come to clinic to be, to see the doctor? And so they did dichotomize on that basis. It wasn't, it's not perfect in that there probably are additional nuances, Anyway, but they they, they, they they did kind of incorporate elements of that. Also, the participant, kind of what the index patient, the influenza drug, the influenza patient was given, and the age of the participant as well, because I was thinking that the age also affects the level of the intensity of contact between household members. But overall, I thought it was a really interesting and well-designed Study. I never quite know how to view these kind of industry connections in this sort of, especially in a study that has such a strong finding. But the study does, you know, the study does seem to be well done, and obviously would be really, really important if these if these findings hold up.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. I so one of the things that I think about was thinking about when reading this is is who does this study really applied to. So as you mentioned first off this is this is largely influenza A whether or not that matters or not I'm not really sure Chris you could probably speak to that. But the other thing is you know from what I could tell of the age this is this is largely a study about can you protect parents from mm-hmm. getting sick when their children bring influenza home. It there were some grandparents you know some older aged individuals in the study but it seemed to me that the average the, the average age of the children of the index cases was kids and the average age of the contacts was adults but not you know not elderly though there, again there were some and, and, and I wonder whether skewed,
0: by the way to, to- the female adults, so probably, it, presumably the mothers.
1: Exactly, yep. And so I do wonder whether you think there would be any difference in the results if there had been more grandparents in the home that this were being enrolled in this study. Chris, is that do you think that, that would change things?
0: Yeah, it's possible because, you know, Jess had made the comment earlier on about the sort of the funny result that we see this, you know, very, very large effect size for PCR-confirmed symptomatic flu. and and no effects whatsoever for simple PCR positivity in in asymptomatic patients. And actually, there was a a middle category, which was you know, PCR positivity uh, irrespective of symptoms, which meant symptoms yes or symptoms no without distinction. And and so there's sort of a degraded effect across those three groups. And there was also in one of the subgroup analyses, uh, an analysis that looked at the effect of the age of the recipient. So when the the recipients of the prophylaxis was less than 12, the effect was was actually much less potent. I think it was in the 40 to 50% protection range rather than the 80 to 90% range. So that was interesting, and it's a reminder, I guess, that, that all of these drugs in some way work hand-in-hand hand with the immune system of the, of the, the patient, right? That, that, you know, this is a, a drug that inhibits the replication of this virus, and I suppose in theory if you could inhibit long enough, you know, maybe it would just sort of peter out, and, would, you know, the innate cellular processes would eventually cure the virus out of cells, but it, it is also possible that what you're really trying to do is to suppress and slow down the virus so that the host's immune system can do the the rest of the work. And that might also kind of explain this gradient of of response across the clinical flu versus the asymptomatic flu, that one is really looking at the ability of the virus to replicate by itself, which seemed to be less potent, whereas the one that actually looked at whether this was going to prevent a clinical illness with PCR confirmation was much was much more effective. And that also would explain why perhaps you know, younger children, less than 12, had less benefit from this drug, because presumably they've had less, well, not presumably, certainly they have had fewer years of exposure to influenza and has less, you know, a much lower rate of 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 baseline immunity. That's how I would read this. Now, by extension, I would then wonder, what about the elderly? You know, where they've had, you know, decades now of exposure to influenza but are now experiencing immune senescence and so they're they're losing that immune repertoire and whether they would also lose efficacy for the same thing it would also kind of tend to support the theory if we did see that that the, the immune system is still the key factor behind how these these drugs ultimately work it's not just suppressing the virus but it's suppressing the virus so that the the the, the immune system can then clear the infection
1: yeah I, I so the thing i wonder about then is whether or not we would actually see a benefit this large if we actually rolled this out in practice for a couple of reasons. One one just being that I, you know, in general, when I see large effects in trials, I tend to think they're not going to be sustained when you actually do this in, in practice, because populations are different, because trial conditions are, you know, generally unrealistic. And so maybe we don't see quite as big of a benefit. But also, you know, I just wonder whether the conditions for which, you know, th- there's no information... At least in the main study, I didn't read the supplemental material on how these patients were actually recruited and identified and whether you could do the same kind of rollout in the United States and find people as quickly. You know, are people getting to care facilities for treatment of influenza early enough that that you'd be able to prevent these infections? I, I you know, I don't know. I also wonder whether, you know, the the population in the study were just patients who were identified early and therefore the benefit to the to the contacts was greater because they you know there had been less time for them to be exposed. So I do wonder about whether or not the effect size would be as large in practice. Jess, mm-hmm. any mm-hmm. any last thoughts you want to raise?
2: Sure. I also thought it was interesting that the the index patient was dosed with either biloxivir or oseltamivir in clinic, which Chris, at least in my experience as a parent, doesn't seem to happen very often when kids present with influenza. At least in my experience, they're rarely given an antiviral unless they're really ill. And so I was wondering how that would play into the results that might be seen for this sort of, even this sort of experimental study in the United States where children are not receiving typically antiviral medication in coming to the pediatrician's office with influenza and how that affects the kind of household transmission, the infectiousness, the level of infectiousness of the child if the child is also given a dose of biloxivir. So I, I in, in terms of the realistic implications in other contexts, I was interested in, in, that, specific, in that specific note. Yeah, totally agree with you on that point, Jessica. I, I would also
0: add to add one more point, which Matt had raised earlier about the half-life and like if one dose, great, why not two? Hmm. I think that's actually a really interesting point because when you... When you look at their, their emergence of resistance data, and they had this sort of complicated figure, which sort of is a, like a series of time events across, you know, over the, the day since the index case evolved. And then they list also when the, the mutations, the, you know, the, the biloxivir resistance mutations were detected in the res, in, the, in the prophylactic recipients, right? And most of those occur after around day five or six relative to their first dose. And so you you think that like, okay, that's now about two half-lives of the drug have gone down, down by day six. And so the concentration of of biloxivir is now four times lower than the initial concentration. And so maybe what we're seeing is that the emergence of resistance is is sort of timing with the decline in serum concentrations of the drug, much as like we see when patients sort of go off of of an HIV medicine with a very long half-life, like nivirapine, right? And we we know that that's a a dangerous time for a patient because the half-life of nivirapine is so long that it has this tremendous long tail out. Where the concentrations of their drug are well below the therapeutic levels needed to suppress HIV. So, could the same thing be going on here? And so, you know, if what you're trying to do is to get the immune system to, you know, to clear off the virus and you want to keep the viral replication as low as possible, why not give a second dose at around day three so that you don't run into that sort of trough of the drug concentration where resistance seems to be emerging?
1: Well, all the same, seems like a a really interesting and promising study. And my hope is that this is going to actually lead to a benefit for actual patients. All right, well, let's move on to our, our second segment where we want to talk about a viewpoint piece, again, that was published in JAMA. And this one was entitled, A Proposed Lottery System to Allocate Scarce COVID-19 Medications, Promoting Fairness and Generating Knowledge by Douglas White. Publi- and again, it was published in JAMA. And in my intro, you notice I actually said for allocating vaccinations, but this is actually much more about allocating allocating medications, not really vaccinations, and the the idea for this article is that they they go into the the issue of, of remdesivir, which was the first drug that we really found that has some appears to have some benefit in terms of reducing uh, morbidity and mortality from COVID nineteen. And the problem is, of course, we don't have enough of it, and so we run into the problem of having to ration. The, the drugs. And this, of course, is something that we have faced in the past. Chris, you just mentioned HIV drugs. Obviously, when when HIV drugs first became available, and particularly in resource-limited settings, but I suppose all over the world, we had to think about who do we first give those drugs to as we are identifying and more funding to to make access available and scaling up the production. And so the argument that this author is, is making is that one way we could think of to allocate scarce resources is through a lottery system. So we could think about identifying how many doses of a particular drug or treatment that we have available. And then we could identify the people that are in need or the projections for the number of people that we think will be in need over time as those resources are continuing to be used over time. And since these medications tend to be allocated on a state-by-state on state system, you know, state health departments then could take information on a patient and essentially put them into an immediate lottery. They would, you know, flip the coin or whatever computer-generated randomization type approach you're going to use. And then that would say a yay or a nay on whether or not that patient gets that particular drug. And you may react to that and think, well, that just sounds cruel that if we have the drug, why wouldn't we give it to the person and just use it essentially on a first-come, 1st first serve basis until we run out? But, you know, is it necessarily the fairest to give it to the first person who shows up and say, you know, you were you were there first, therefore you get it, when in fact there could be potentially a better use of that medication if we were to, to dole it out on more of a random basis? And the argument in favor of randomization, or one of the arguments in favor of randomizations are... That you know, often in an emergency situation like we're dealing with with COVID-19, these drugs are being rolled out with limited information. So we have some data that suggests that remdesivir is effective. We don't really know much about the long-term effectiveness or anything about long-term side effects necessarily in relation to COVID-19. And so by allocating these drugs on a random basis, you actually are essentially conducting a randomized trial as you do the rollout that would allow you to have really good data to be able to determine both the long-term efficacy and the long-term side effects. Now, you could obviously think about other ways to do a randomized you know, allocation. You could randomize within levels of, of severity. Let's say we think that people who are you know, have the least severe, have the most to gain, so you might weight them differently. But ultimately the idea would be that a, a randomized approach is, in this argument, both an ethical way to do things and a good way to do things in terms of getting better data. So Jess, let me start with you. Do you buy the argument that this is both a good idea and that this is an ethical approach to how we should roll out scarce treatments?
2: Yeah, this is an interesting an interesting paper and I think I agree with the ethics behind it that I think it improves fairness to have this sort of structure to be able to say that to be able to say that there are objective there's an objective basis for a given individual to receive or not to receive the medication. I think there's challenges into coming up with those specifications and coming up with the scheme to decide who's at the top of the ranking and who's at the lower end of the ranking what what was challenged what i thought was challenging about this paper was that the lotteries were to be placed within state health departments to, was the feasibility, the, the feasibility of actually conducting this system and some of the unintended, potentially unintended consequences of a lottery system. So in, in terms of looking at the feasibility, the authors propose that it be based in the state health department system. And, and this has a benefit in that The state health department, for example, could come up with a allocation scheme that's unique to their state or that might specifically address vulnerabilities in their state or the specific kind of demographic breakdown in their state. And so it's not a one size fit all approach. However, I think as has been evidenced in these early months of the pandemic, the state health departments are incredibly s- stressed right now, and don't I, I I don't see it being feasible that they would have the capacity to then develop and implement a lottery system within the time frame that clinicians would want it in, right? And so, I mean, I'm working on a study right now where we're trying to get data. We're in Massachusetts, and we're trying to get data from the Massachusetts Department of Health, and it's very it's difficult. You know, they are understaffed. The data is coming in from many sources. Someone has to consolidate it into a single database. There is not a streamlined process for this to happen right now, and so it would require a tremendous investment on the local level to be able to make it to be able to make this actually functional. That mm-hmm. was my concern. My second concern was, from an economic standpoint, when you make something scarce, you encourage the development of a black market, and and so to the extent that in every environment where Health resources have, there have been attempts to standardize health resources across the population, like the National Health Service in the UK or any sort of kind of government organized healthcare system. People with means have the option to opt out. And I'm sure that that would happen here, that there would be a, you know, people who had resources would still be able to get whatever drug we were looking at outside of the lottery system. And to the extent that then people's energy is spent in that regard, that becomes kind of an unintended consequence of a lottery exercise, that there will be clinicians and patients and, provi- and kind of pharmaceutical companies looking to fill this need outside of the lottery system.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, I hadn't, I hadn't even thought of that second point. It strikes me as really important. I mean, I was going to say, you know, well, we've had lottery-based systems before. I mean, that's essentially what the the draft, you know, the Vietnam War era draft was. But, but of course, as as you would say, I mean, we have that the the draft did not actually apply as a full fully randomized process because you had people who managed to you know get themselves out of out of the the draft itself because they had the means to do so so that it strikes me as spot on chris do you share these concerns
0: yeah and i think jess explained it really well and i i suppose one could and they they do talk about this in an article that you could have some sort of Stratified randomization, if we will, which is based on need and and sort of medical priority. so that perhaps people who are most in need of the drug would get first access to the drug, and there might not even be a need for for you know rationing amongst those individuals. But then you sort of come down to the second tier, where you know now there's there's enough to treat the sickest of the sick, but we have to sort of ration with the second tier, and and therein you know perhaps a, a lottery would be more feasible. I guess I would I would wonder you know since the departments of the public health are completely maxed out, and are generally under-resourced as well, whether the, 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 the onus of running and implementing a lottery system might fall on Gilead itself. You know, this, the company is, is going to be making out handsomely from the sales of remdesivir, you know, in fact, they're, they're donating the drug at massive scale, but they're making, you know, they're expecting to make a massive profit off of this. So some of that could go into creating like an internet-based randomization system to, to, you know, to administer such a lottery. So you could actually have them do it and you could base supply to the hospitals that are administering, you know, or provi- actually providing the drug to patients, you know, with, so that there's some control to maybe encourage enforcement. And so I, I think it, it, it could be done. It wouldn't necessarily have to be done by the Department of Public Health, but it could be done by the, the pharmaceutical company itself. So, you know, the other thing is that, you know, there's this is randomization, but it is randomization now... That is, I guess, occurring outside many of the usual controls we have for for randomizations. You know, for example, we don't have any blinding here, and so even though there's randomization, it's still not a gold standard randomized control trial because there's ascertainment bias potentially, or detection bias going on, um, or reporting bias and how these outcomes are, you know, are are uh, are, are are happening. But I, I I do feel that that is not a reason to dispense with it because you know the information would. Still, be extremely helpful. I think so. Overall, I, I I liked the idea.
1: Yeah, I think it would be would be really good. I don't worry so much about the ascertainment bias or the or the lack of blinding, in the sense that I think that you know you're going to do this on a large scale, and I think the the outcome that probably matters the most that you're actually going to be able to link to you mortality, know is, right? is 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 mortality, and yeah, so that obviously is is subject to that same problem. I do th- so I do think that there are ways that you could make this work. One thing that I I do think about is, you know, do, do, you would need to think very carefully about what strata you were going to use within which to randomize. So so say we're not talking about a treatment, but we're actually talking about a vaccine that gets developed and we're rolling that out. We don't really want to completely randomize who's going to get the the vaccine first. We want to target those resources towards those who are going to have the biggest Impact on because it's an infectious disease, and so if we can figure out who are most likely to to spread the disease, vaccinating them has the potential to protect those who are not vaccinated. Right, and so in that case, you know, I don't, I don't know that such a, a strategy is necessarily as straightforward, but still seems to me if you have scarce resources within levels of what you think is most important, might be still worthwhile.
0: Right, but I think, I think the vaccine comparison demand several important distinctions. You know, vaccines for the most part should be viewed always as public health tools rather than as commodities at the individual level. They work best when they're 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 delivered in a In a strategy that is aiming to cover the population and build herd immunity. Whereas, you know, that's not necessarily the case of of like, you know, I have the resources and I have the privilege and therefore I want the vaccine. That is not an effective way of using vaccines. You've got to use them in a, like, in a strategic way. You have to be smart about this so that you, you know, perhaps, in fact, you want to vaccinate the young Hale and Hardy who are you know unlikely to develop severe covid-19 disease so you say why would you start with them and the answer is probably because they're the ones who are spreading it you know so you want to pr- mm-hmm. create the firewalls in society where they are going to be most effective you know and similarly when you when you when you start talking about you know a, a drug like remdesivir you know while there seems to be some justice in in you know prioritizing the drug for the sickest of the sick, you also have to remember that you know, if, if, if someone is already on dialysis and has already been on a ventilator for two weeks and they're already suffering multi-system organ failure, you know, remdesivir is not a magic potion. It's, it's, you know, it has a marginal effect. It has a marginally beneficial effect on hospitalization duration. That's, that's really what we know about it. And so it is very unlikely to pull back someone who is already sort of really going into the end stage uh, of, of the disease. So perhaps, in fact, it would make more sense to give it to people who are slightly less sick, who you want to try to you know, keep them from, from going into that end stage disease. So it, it is indeed very complicated ethically.
1: I would agree. Jess, any last thoughts?
2: Yeah, I, th- I think, I mean, this paper speaks to the one we talked about in the last episode in terms of where do you, where does it fall in terms of evidence versus heuristics and i think a lottery system would have to very clear there would have to almost be agreement as to what is the ev- what is the data what does the data suggest in terms of vulnerability and and effectiveness of a given medication, for example, if we're talking about medication. And I'm not sure that there's widespread agreement. I mean you could have a decision that could be made by a group of academics, for example, that could identify certain vulnerability parameters, and those could be you know, those could be contested by a different group of of, you know, so called experts. And so the shared set of facts, I think, you know, that's 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 something that I think is Is difficult in coming to in in saying these are the facts that are going to drive this lottery system. And, uh, and, you know, one other concluding thought I had as it was, you know, as it is related to equity and COVID, how COVID has really just exacerbated racial inequity in terms of healthcare resources in this country. And to the extent that a lottery system like this, you know, there would be the potential that it could continue to be a tool of perpetuating that inequity unless it's done in a way with that in mind. And so and I don't know exactly how that would be done, but the likelihood that it it, it seems more likely than not that it would perpetuate these inequities, this sort of structure. And so it would have to be done in a very smart way with an eye towards you know, use, like the, the idea that it's not entirely fair. There will be people who will be able to opt out of this system for whatever reason, and there will be people whose vulnerabilities are not captured by whatever data stream is being used to establish the set of facts for the lottery. So I think there are some challenges, even though I think this paper very clearly demonstrates the need for decision-making metrics when it comes to treatment and by extension vaccines.
1: So well said. And I agree with you that we really need to pay attention to, the, to those who have already borne so much of the, the burden of this disease when we think about who to allocate scarce resources to. All right, well, let's leave that one there and let's move on to our favorite segment, which is our Amazing and Amusing. And Chris, why don't you, why don't you go first this time?
0: Well, mine is a little bit more on the amazing than the amusing uh, right. side. So this was a, a, uh, an analysis that came out of NASA and their Earth Observatory group, which looks at air pollution amongst other things. And they were looking at the concentration of nitrogen dioxide, which is a common pollutant coming mainly out of car exhaust engines, in China before and after the COVID-19 lockdowns. So, using 2019 as the sort of comparator to 2020, when central China and indeed much of industrial China had been had its economy basically turned off because of of uh, the need to limit spread of the virus, and they have satellite images of central China, centered around Wuhan, in fact, and the sort of the heat maps of air pollution in 2019 versus 2020 are. You know, you, you can't imagine that these are the same places. And so they, they actually noted that they, the Wuhan lockdown coincided roughly with the Chinese New Year, where there's often a drop in pollution because people go home for two weeks for, you know, their, their major winter holidays, essentially. And and so, but even after accounting for the, the lunar holiday drop, you know, we went from, they went from, excuse me, concentrations of, of, of tropospheric nitrogen dioxide in central Wuhan of greater than 500 micromoles per square meter of air, down to in the 50 range. So like a 90% reduction from one year to the next, basically because everybody was locked in their houses. And so like if you're sort of thinking about like what is the impact of automobile ex- exhaust, this was just a particularly striking one, I thought. And I, I should mention that cynically, unfortunately, since the, the economy in China has has reopened since that time, that the air pollution levels are back to their their yearly typical mm. averages. So,
1: well, you had to think it was going to come back, but it's unfortunate. Too bad. All right. Well, I'm going to go second this time. And I so I came across this study that I wanted to use at some point as an amazing and amusing. It came from it was 2015. From the Journal of Evaluation in Clinical Practice, and the title of the study is Maternal Kisses Are Not Effective in Alleviating Minor Childhood Injuries, Boo Boos, a Randomized Controlled Child. <laughs> Have Did you guys you heard of this study? Child? No, a randomized yeah. controlled and blinded <laughs> study. Okay, so essentially, a study of whether or not maternal kisses are actually effective for childhood illness. So I read this study.
0: This is the consortium of wicked stepmothers who published this. Yeah,
1: (laughs) exactly. So I I read this study. When I actually read it, I was not... First, I wasn't sure, like, is this like a BMJ-type thing, BMJ Christmas edition-type thing, where it's a real study, but it's on an amusing subject, or is this just a completely fake study, completely made-up study? And I came to realize... It is a completely made-up study, at least as at least I hope it is. Because if it isn't, I think it's actually something that I don't even want to necessarily put on amazing and amusing. But what what actually I did want to because I when I actually so read is, it, I –
0: this did, is not amazing and amusing, Matt. This is cynical and depressing.
1: Yes, well that's depressing. You know, so, but I so they it's a completely made-up study. And when you make up a study, I you know I I didn't really wasn't overly amused by the made up study. But when you make up a study, you could, in theory, give actual citations to real studies that you're quoting or, you know, are citing as evidence for to support your study. Uh-huh. or you could just make them up, which, as far as I can tell, is what <laughs> they did here because when I went to their reference list, they the first thing that they cited was the because they say, you know, there isn't really much evidence to support whether or not maternal kisses of boo-boos are, is effective because the studies were not well designed. So there's studies out there, and they cite the 2002 Cochrane Database of Systematic Reviews entitled The Maternal Kissing of Early Childhood Injuries. That was when I got my first clue that this is definitely made up. <laughs> so some of the other fake citations they have are the High Frequency of Maternal Kissing and Early Childhood Injuries study, a 2008 editorial from pediatrics entitled so what the hell is going on here a 2008 (laughs) study by tomlinson and stewart entitled studying the pain of childhood development of a toddler discomfort index so Uh that that was certainly my clue that this was not real and then finally one of the ones i thought uh lancaster and wilson and and kunz 2007 i don't like you the rejection of maternal displays of affection in early childhood. So I thought, you know, if you're going to, if you're going to go through the trouble of making up a study, you at least got to come up with good studies to be made up to, to support your study. So that, that was my amazing and amusing this week. (laughs) Jess, Jess, what do you got for us?
2: Depressing. Yes. Oh, interesting. So I have a, this is a, a sequel to Chris's Shark Attack piece Mm. from our last episode this is an article that came out a few weeks ago called behavioral responses of white sharks to specific baits during cage diving ecotourism oh wow so Mm. i thought this is not not i don't know matt and chris if you've ever participated in cage diving with white sharks
0: (laughs) i don't even do cage fighting anymore i assume that (laughs) why not chris people keep hitting me with folding chairs (laughs)
2: <laughs>
1: yeah, and is it also because your beard isn't big enough to sustain the impact? You know, I
0: was wondering, they call me Glassjaw Joe. That must Gil. be
2: true. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, no. Well, so, you know, so apparently this is a thing for some people. They want to be lowered in a cage in shark infested waters. And then the eco-tourist companies, you know, they'll take people out on a boat. Yeah, at least they're thrill seeking. And so this is different from what's going on in Cape Cod, where people are just kind of paddling inadvertently looking like seals and then getting chased or bitten by great white sharks. But, um, so the ecotourist companies will take boats of people to these areas where there are great white sharks, lower tourists in a cage into the shark infested waters and then throw different baits out to try to attract the sharks. And so what they were looking for was, do you know, kind of number one, do the different types of baits attract sharks differentially and then secondly were the sharks becoming conditioned so would they would they come mm-hmm. more more readily for dead bait or or alive bait and anyway so so they 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 used all kinds of different baits natural chum you know and so generally the sharks behaved a little more violently aggressively towards live bait but the frozen bait they said did not generate a defined behavioral pattern And they really did not see any conditioning of the sharks on the basis of the type of bait (laughs) that they used. Hmm. But this apparently is a concern among marine ecologists that the sharks were going to get used to, you know, just being, they were just going to come to a certain spot, look for the human meat, and then just be there for the sides of shrimp that were being tossed to them. So so I thought this was kind of this was kind of interesting looking at shark shark behavior, but more interesting in the context of being lowered in a cage into shark-infested waters and then researchers trying to figure out what was more likely to drive the shark in your direction.
1: Yeah. So this is this, this this I've never done this. I have no desire to do this. It sounds horrible to me. But this was a this was a big thing in in South Africa when we were living there that off the, you know, in Cape Town off the, the Pierce area, there would be these companies that would take you out. It sounds it sounds horrible to me.
2: Yeah, this, this study took place off the coast of Mexico. Yeah. yeah, I don't know. You know, people need a little excitement in their lives. There's not enough going on right now with the what's pandemic. New, you got to jump into Island the shark waters. Off
0: of Say that again? Guadalupe Island. It's off of... What's the name of the peninsula yes. that comes down?
2: Baja, Baja California. Baja
0: California. So... I I had been to Baja, California, a number of years ago, but I was in the Bay rather than on the Pacific side, which is, I think, where Guadalupe Island is, which is where the Great Whites seem to congregate for Mm -hmm. whatever reason. Mm. And I, but I was, you know, I I read all these things and then they freaked me out. And so I I would jump off of the boat and then swim for shore as fast as possible because I was, you know, wearing a black wetsuit amongst most other things. And so I just felt like, you know, I don't want to be dinner. Totally paranoid and totally irrational. But with that said... I was wondering if the two of you were, had heard the kind of shocking news that there was a woman uh, attacked and killed by a great white last weekend in Casco Bay in Maine.
1: I had heard that one, yeah. Yeah, quite close yeah, to Yeah, I had Bates, heard this right? too, that's
2: right.
1: Uh, Bates is inland, but yes.
0: Right, but isn't, isn't Bates like connecting up through those, those fjords to Casco Bay?
1: Uh, there are fjords in Maine? I don't know.
0: Uh-huh. I'm not sure what else to call them.
1: But, okay, you know, we'll go she with was, that.
0: She was only 20 feet off the shore swimming along and it you know mm. got her
1: it's quite quite far north it was quite the, far north with it
0: it was the first confirmed shark attack fatal shark attack I should say in the history of Maine.
1: Mm, yep they normally aren't that mm. far up mm. you know I'm gonna go ahead and say that this is probably our most depressing amazing and amusing ever mm-hmm. <laughs> <Pretty grim. laughs> all right well Sorry.
0: it's the time it's the you know o tempora o Mores. I don't know what that, that, that means well what is it It means the times, the morals, you know, it's just like a depressing state.
1: All right. That is the end of our program. So if you got any feedback on this or any other episode or you want to suggest a study or a topic for us to take on, you can tweet us at PopHealthyX. Or you can tweet me at at ProfMattFox or Chris at ID.Gill or Jess when she gets hers set up. Or you can find us on the Population Health Exchange website at www.POPHealthyX.org. We want to thank Leslie Talali and director of lifelong learning at the BU school of public health for supporting the podcast and Nick Guler for sound editing and having the best Paisley shirt on zoom. So thanks for joining us. We hope you enjoyed it and we hope you download our next episode.